Um, today's reading from Luke 16, verses 1 to 15, page 1048 of your church pew Bibles. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Excellent. Uh, You might like to take up your bulletin and welcome everyone. Congratulations for being here. And um, we pray for our brothers and sisters who aren't here, who are feeling a little bit more faint of heart or a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, It's lovely to be here together, isn't it? Uh, Just before I preach today, I thought I might need to make a little statement about uh, corona matters, so forgive me for doing that before we turn to God's word. Uh, You'll know at the moment every organisation really needs to communicate to its members how it's responding to coronavirus, and I hope during the week that you received an email from us to talk about the early measures that we're taking. If you didn't, um, that would surprise me, and maybe because we don't have your email. Uh, Either way, I'd love to know that. We really want to make sure we're in really good communication with everyone at the moment. Uh, A way you can do that is grab your share with us slip in the bulletin, fill it in, which looks like that, only real, because I don't have one with me. Uh, If you could fill that in and put it in the offertory bag today, that'd be terrific to make sure that you're getting all communication. Um, Today, some matters of faith come first. Here's some things we believe. We believe the world's never been immune from pain or disaster, And that God has not promised to immunise it from pain. And that these things have always been part of a good God's world who is bringing the world not to an end, 
but to a wonderful new beginning. We believe these things. We believe that we are people of faith and our fears are calmed by faith. And we're people who can face sickness and even death with hope. Uh, Therefore, we don't wish to respond to anything with panic, though it may well up in our hearts from time to time. Uh, We we calm it by faith. Uh, We believe, however, that some faith is strong and some faith is weak. And as Luther helpfully pointed out hundreds of years ago, uh, in the middle of his own plague time, uh, many more Christians' faith is weak than it is strong. Therefore, we don't judge each other. Isn't that lovely? Uh, We also believe that scientific advice is really good wisdom. And so we take the advice from our authorities and we seek to cooperate as best we can. Uh, Our staff meeting as a church is on Monday morning. Tomorrow we'll be meeting and spending significant time working through our response at lots of levels. Uh, And for the many people who are asking me questions or sending me Facebook links or uh, about what other churches are doing and what other organisations are doing, just want to assure you that our pattern is to respond to government advice and diocesan advice and mostly government advice, um, anything the diocese says unless it disagrees with government advice, which is yet to happen. But uh, we figure the government probably has better access information to us uh, and we're not really doubting that. We're going to follow that advice. Uh, We'll be adding a a page to our website tomorrow uh, and that will stay updated on any changed responses so that we can remain pretty agile um, and we'll communicate any changes to that page through email and Facebook. So very important again that we have your email and if you want to um, uh, join our church Facebook group, please uh, do that. Uh, I want to speak a little for a moment about discipleship in disaster. As someone who, for the last few years, regularly uh, travels overseas to a disastrous place and every year sees food and supply shortages um, and has been in the middle of an epidemic and been there and found ministry disrupted in the middle of an epidemic and spent time with pastors of churches in the very suburbs where epidemics have broken out and many people have died, Uh, I have been always very interested in a kind of ministry paper that I'm yet to write called Discipleship in Disaster. I thought, wow, we're going to need to know that one day. I actually didn't think the day would come very soon. (laughs) Here it is. Um, Even more important than the management of our material processes, though those are very important, is the cultivation of our hearts. Hearts that calm anxiety by prayer and praise are very important. I don't know if you found that already as we sung this morning and proclaimed the resurrection and the goodness of our God. Hearts that love others when it gets hard, and we'll see what that means in weeks to come. Hearts that have mercy and do not judge. Oh, we need that. And hearts that are prepared for illness and even death and prepared to laugh and smile and do all the good ordinary things of life in the shadow of them should be no surprise to us. Hearts that remember that we exist before I exist and I only really exist because we exist. These are some of the things we need to cultivate in our hearts. I think we have a really precious time of formation ahead of us, don't you? Uh, This week, therefore, we hope to communicate to your hearts and not just your heads, but mostly I want to lead us in prayer. Glenda sent me a terrific prayer this week, um, not written by her, written by someone else. 
And uh, I'm going to pray it. I think it's pretty, pretty good and it can help us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may we who are merely inconvenienced remember those whose lives are at stake. And Lord, may we who have no risk factors remember those who are vulnerable. Father, may we who have the luxury of working from home remember those who must choose between preserving health or making rent. And we who have the flexibility to care for kids when schools close remember those who have no options. May we who have to cancel trips remember those who have no safe place to travel to. And we who are losing our margin money in the tumult of the market Remember those who have no margin at all. May we who settle in for quarantine at home remember those who have no home. And as fear grips our country, Father, let us choose love. During this time when we cannot physically wrap our arms around each other, let us yet find ways to be the loving embrace of you to our neighbours. Lord, teach us. Amen. Uh, just a very little uh, practical, almost irrelevant, but not quite a relevant note. Uh, if you are an older member of our congregation and you are short on toilet paper at the moment, one member of our church did bring us a stockpile to share with you. So come see Heather after church and she'll uh, um, kind of help you out. Obviously in the next few weeks we'll need to think about other supply issues and we'll attend to that at staff meeting tomorrow. So um, all's well. Uh, let's pray and get into God's word. Uh, Father, we um, thank you so much for your word. We need it all the time. We need it today, we need it tomorrow, and we will need it until you return, Lord Jesus, and take us in your hands. And uh, we're in your hands now, Father. We're in your hands, Jesus, by these words. Uh, So we sit there content and we're keen to learn. Amen. Uh, Well, as you well know, the news has been pretty dire lately, um, and my view is for six nights out of seven, it's best avoided. I reckon if you see a news bulletin coming, you should go for a run or, you know, like build a little sailboat in a bottle, because that takes a long time, or take your time at it, like really take your time, or take up guitar, I don't know, I recommend actions like these. But one night recently, I did catch the news and something caught my eye, and this was actually before the pandemic, this was back in January. I saw this. The Atomic Scientist Agency gave us one of their, um, what used to be very infrequent updates and now more frequent updates about how many seconds till midnight, which sounds like an action movie, but is their atomic calculations of how our world is going. And I think it was a few months, in late last year, they said it was two minutes to midnight, and then they went, it's seconds now, which has a real kind of urgent impact on the mind, or at least it did on me. The scientists are telling me the end is near. They, they had my ear. They really did. I immediately got online and found an app that could track my carbon footprint. And then I signed up because the app's still in development. And time's ticking. And I'm like, I'm putting muddy carbon footprints all over the world and I don't even have an app to help me. And I thought, what am I going to do? You'd be mad not to listen to such scientists. It's urgent. It's 100 seconds till midnight. They have my ear. Uh, Jesus never has on this point very much, I have to candidly admit. 
For Jesus also tells us he's near and he brings an end with him. Uh, And uh, in Jesus' teaching in the Bible, it seems to me that the urgency with which he speaks always suggests it's like 100 seconds, not to midnight, but to eternity. That it's actually really good news, like tremendous news, like tragic and triumphant and tumultuous news, but fundamentally good news for Jesus to return. And yet I somehow, while I give my ear to scientists, have never really given my ear to Jesus on this. This week I've been thinking, why? And I suspect, I think, that Jesus thinks that he didn't think much about the end either. And I think that despite all the evidence that he clearly did. (laughs) I don't know why this is. And so today we open up one of those stories which you just can't think that Jesus didn't think much about thinking much about the end. Um, Because this is one of those stories where he so patently did. And you could open a number of stories... (laughs) But we're opening this one because we're in the middle of a series thinking about the generosity of God and how we might learn to be generous. And it's in that context about money, actually, that Jesus spoke in this case about the end. The story's in Luke 16. It's page 1048 if you've um, closed your Bible and it'd be good having it open. It's a weirdly immoral story with a moral point and it just puts everything in light of eternity. So let me retell the story, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it for you this time with some slightly changed circumstances, so that if you didn't hear it the first time, you might hear it the second time. So here's in my own words. I want you to imagine a corner store. Corner store, you know, lollies and ice creams and, you know, foodstuffs and empty toilet paper shelves, all that jazz. Um, there's a corner store, and there's a worker there, and let's call him, I don't know, let's call him Josh. All right? Uh, Josh has just discovered he's about to be fired. Why? And this is hard to believe, but Josh has been double dipping in the ice cream tubs. And the kind of staff fridge that the manager has found, like a little portion of rainbow ripple left over in his kind of container, the container that has Josh's food, no one touch all over it. And so he's due to be fired at 2pm and he'll be marched from the corner store, do not pass go, don't clean out your locker. It's 12 noon. In the space between 12 noon and 2pm, Josh sees Clem and Anna and Aidan. They, they come in, they've finished a long morning's game of Dungeons and Dragons and they're, they're hungry and Josh gives them a double serving of Rainbow Ripple. Right? And, and that, that goes, well, he looks like it's quarter to two. And uh, Owen, Simon and Christine come in. They've been at netball. Good on you. Gender neutral netball. It's very trendy these days. And, uh, and, and they're, they're kind of, they're hungry too. So Josh goes, you look really hungry. How about a triple helping of rainbow ripple with a flake and some sprinkles on top? And then two o'clock comes and um, the manager comes in and says, Josh, it's, uh, don't expect a reference. It's time you left. And the manager looks out the front window and there is Clem and Anna and Aidan and Owen and Simon and Christine standing on the street beaming, ready to accept their friend, like ready to cheer as he leaves the store. And the manager says to Josh, Josh, you're one smart cookie. Not honest, but smart. And I see your cunning is a rat's kind of cunning. No offence, my friend. 
And I admire your immoral, ruthless opportunism. And one day you'll go far in the world, but not here. You're still fired. Out you go. <laughs> Sorry. And Josh walks out of the corner store and meets his friends and they play all afternoon long. Play all afternoon as the sun goes down and the colours mix in the sky like a giant tub of rainbow ripple ice cream. Isn't that a beautiful story? But you can't really like Josh, can you? In the story. I hasten to add. It's just, just not right. And it gets a good outcome. Uh, you know, you can sympathise with him, but he's not done the right thing. Um, you're not meant to sympathise with him, by the way. He has not acted morally. Now, I've watched Bible studies open this story, and there's been two hours trying to work out how that's somehow a moral action, because Jesus commends it in the story. Ah, you're wasting your time. The point is obvious. It's not that the story is moral, it's that the story has a moral. <laughs> and the moral is this. When time's short and the end is coming, you need friends on the other side of time, on the other side of the end. And whatever time you've got now, make it count to gain those friends. It's a story. It's not a hard story. Why does Jesus tell this story? Ah, that's a good question. We know who he tells it to. Verse 1 tells it he's telling it to the disciples. And verse 14, you can see, says he's also telling it in the hearing and the sneering of the Pharisees. They're there too. So there's two audiences. He's sort of teaching one and one suspects rebuking the other, right? Why? Why has this come about? Well, let me just take you back two chapters. Chapter 14, chapter 15 of Luke. In chapter 14, um, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house. He's feasting. The Pharisees put on a banquet. There's a guy there who's lame. It's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, you know, because you've got nothing better to do at a good dinner party except like mock the cripple, kind of sit around asking whether they should heal, whether the guy should be healed, given it's the Sabbath. Their conclusion is, naturally, being Pharisees, no, no, you wouldn't do that. And Jesus rebukes them because though their table is set richly, they have no riches for this person. Here, here is a physical embodiment of the poor among them, and they, ha they are poor in their response to him. Uh, which, of course, shows, because we've been looking at God's generosity for a while, who loves care for the poor, that they are poor towards God. It's not just the guy in their midst, they're poor towards God. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15, the tables are reversed. The Pharisees are now at Jesus' table. Just a little note, just a note. Jesus tells them off at one meal and then invites them back to his place, so to speak, to his banquet. Okay, Jesus doesn't do meals like I do meals. But they come to Jesus' house and Jesus lays out the table with his disciples um, and they, they moan and complain. And though they're eating this rich banquet that Jesus has put on for them, even though they've been jerks, he, they're muttering that Jesus eats and welcomes sinners. They should be saying, like us. <laughs> but they're not. They're saying, like them. And Jesus points out again, he rebukes them, that they are, for all their riches, for their poor, and that Jesus, in fact, with his table set, is the rich one. Rich in mercy because he knows that the sinners 
need saving. The lost need finding. And we have two scenarios, two groups of people. Uh, The sick who embody the poor in Luke's gospel and the sinner who embody the sinners in Luke's gospel. And you and I actually know from our five weeks of study through the generosity of God that these are the two categories of people that God's heart really beats for and he expects our heart to beat for. We've talked about the justice of God a couple of weeks ago when we looked at tithing and we realised that tithing wasn't on about giving 10%. It was on about doing justice for God's work in the world, which is the salvation of the lost through the gospel. And it was on about God's justice for those who are poor. And justice for God's work and justice for the poor are the two great economic necessities of God's heart in his kingdom. And here we have them in Luke's gospel. We have the poor and the Pharisees have nothing for them. And we have the lost, the sinful, and the Pharisees have nothing for them. And then Jesus tells this story to say, the clock's ticking. You eat and indulge in these debates, Pharisees, but the clock is ticking and the time is coming. And there's an end to this. And you are not ready. That's why he tells this story. Uh, Why aren't they ready? Why have they proved so poor to the sick and the sinner? And the answer is, have have they proved poor to the sick because they don't want to get sick? No. Have they proved poor to the sinner because they don't want to be unholy? No. They'd give both those answers, by the way, but Jesus sees the heart. And he says, no, 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 you just love money. That's what he says in verse 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus and he said, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. We're too holy to be with sinners. We wouldn't heal a sick man on the Sabbath. But God knows your hearts. You love money. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. God's seen your heart and he hates your heart. What's going on in your heart is detestable to God, Pharisees. Wow. And because they can't see clearly today, Jesus shows them every day and eternity. And and the moral of the story, verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Hmm. Well, what should we do with this old little story? It's very clear, though, isn't it? Isn't it lovely? The end is not mere environmental disaster or pandemic. Those things, you know, we may have greater pains to come and... I mean, it might be awful. Who knows? We'll see. But it's very important to know that God did not prepare this world for an awful end, but for a marvellous new beginning. And for people whose natural home is not eternity, he nonetheless is opening dwellings in eternity for us and inviting people in. I know what this feels like because I was told a story before the last service this morning by Anthea, who occasionally comes to our church from England and comes and visits her son in Australia and a friend in New Zealand, because she used to live in New Zealand. Why doesn't she live in New Zealand? She lived in Christchurch. The friend she visits in New Zealand is a friend um, from Christchurch. When the earthquake happened, Anthea's home was flattened. And this friend, a bachelor, said, come to my country house. Why don't you spend the night? So she went to the country house for a night, 
with six others. And then she left that house with those six others six years later. Wow. She said it was the best six years of my life. We were so different from each other. I can't even remember a crossword, she said. It was the best six years of my life. Wasn't she fortunate when the end came for her to have a friend who would welcome her into his home? Mm. We have a friend who will welcome us into his home. We'd be mad not to be friends with him. It's that simple. And one of the things that God really won't tolerate is love of money. Why? Because he says it's another master. It's another master. It's another God. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. They just don't go together. You cannot serve both God and money, as the Pharisees were. Uh, people say no one really loves money. They love what it can achieve. Well, that's fine. But but if you really want if you really want security, which money can achieve, and you go to like you know home world and you say, you know, here is my open palm of desiring security, you'll come home without a home, and you'll come home and you'll love money. And plenty of people who lack security become lovers of money for very good reason, very understandable. Or if you love significance and you go to the prestige shop of product X and you say, here is my love of prestige, I highly value, please give me, they'll turn you away. But if you have money, you'll go home with prestige item that adds to your significance X and, and you'll be tempted to become a lover of money. I don't buy that line at all. I don't buy it because the Pharisees didn't love money either. I suspect they loved the things that it achieved. But Jesus says quite plainly, they loved money. And money had become their master. And here's the thing, you've just got to choose your master. We've got to choose our master. We can either choose a master who can make our next week, next month, next ten years better, or we can choose a master who actually manages eternity. It's that simple. I don't know what this means for you. I've been pondering what this means for me over the last six weeks. I think I've like taken a baby step down the road as I'm learning what it is to know the generosity of God, to add another word to my description of God, the God, the great giver, the generous God. And remember that I'm made in his image, and though I'm cracked and broken by sin, I've been remade by Jesus, and I'm being remade in his image. And this part of my life too can be more like God's, to my great joy, to others' blessing, and to God's glory. Last week I told you the rubber's hitting the road, we're hitting the end of the series, and I put a red slip in your bulletin. Would you like to pull it out now? And I gave you a minute last week, and I said, don't go too much further without giving yourself time for reflection. And I gave you about 30 seconds, which was just enough to tease you with the thought that you might get some reflection time. I'm just going to give you a minute now just to begin to think that through and give you the same encouragement as last week. That is, take it home, make a cup of coffee or tea, sit down, pray, and ask God to help you reflect on how you might prove generous as he has to you. Let me give you a moment, and then I'll, a minute, 
and then just to get the wheels running. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are, you are the great creator, the giving creator, rich and fruitful in all things. You are the great and wonderful provider who looks after us today and has a plan for our tomorrow too. You are the God who is joyful and just, who gives us joy in your presence with the gifts you've given and gives us the means to establish justice for your work in the world and for the work among the poor. You are the God who richly gives wisdom, makes us wise that we might bless others. And you are the God of eternity who holds the keys to our forever home and invites us to live with you. God, you are great. Amen.